to Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer a heretic. I'm your host, Matthew J. DiStefano, and for the next hour, I'll be your Sherpa to nowhere in particular. Nowhere in particular. What is happening, everybody? Uh, I I am here for another episode of Apostates Anonymous. I hope you enjoyed the last one. If you have not had a chance yet, go back to the previous episode with December Rose and check that out because it is it is hot. It is a good one, and uh, be on the lookout uh, for all her stuff. Check out that YouTube video I stuck in the show notes and um, get your feathers ruffled, <laughs> ruffled, ruffled. I got mush mouth today. Uh, get your feathers ruffled by what she's saying. Um, <laughs> and then hit me up and let me know uh, uh, what, what, what you think. Um, so here we are, another episode. This one's going to be a bit heavy. I'm just going to let you all know. I received a um, a, a message from a, a friend, um, Andre Roberts, on Facebook it had to do with white supremacy, white privilege, and mimetic theory, um, and Girardian thinking, and and why there is a propensity for uh, Girardians to either not notice white supremacy or not want to notice white supremacy, and to kind of apologize, uh, kind of being an apologist for uh, not addressing it within the ranks of mimetic theory and those who are Girardians. So I was not about to handle it on my own. (laughs) So I brought on two people I really respect who write for the Raven Review and are part of the Raven Foundation, which are my people. Uh, Adam Erickson, Lindsay Paris Lopez um, are going to be our guests today. So we're going to give them a call here in just a minute. And it's a long one. It's over an hour. So we get into some some heavy stuff and some deep waters. So um, huge shout out to both of them and huge shout out for Andre for having the guts to bring it up on my page. And uh, I hope I hope we address the the concerns, um, not apologize for them because we've noticed the same things, too. So we're not going to be like defensive and, and, and like I've noticed the same stuff and I don't like it. And neither neither do they. So we just try to give a forthright answer. We meander a little bit. We get into a bunch of other stuff. And, but it's not the end-all, be-all conversation. So the conversation can continue. Um, but I hope we did a decent job of just talking about this stuff, talking about hard issues. So today's going to be a little bit heavy. So, uh, But before we get into that, um, I am three patrons away from getting to my goal of 100 patrons on Patreon. Uh, if you want to be one of those, a dollar, $5, $10, $20 a month, $50 a month, if, even if you want to, if you got the money uh, and you really believe in my work, and want to see me continue, um, patreon.com slash mjdistefano, as always, show, uh, show notes, check those out, uh, the link will be in there, um, my book, co-authored with Mike Machuga, The Bonfire Sessions Winter, the whole series is out now, the first year, so uh, I'll also link to that in the show notes, only 99 cents on Kindle, so get that shit out of the way, now we can, uh, now we can get into the heavy stuff, and we're going to give uh, my crew at the Raven Review a call. Hello. 
See, I, I told you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say something. And then, okay. <laughs> Literally happens every time. It's okay. Why did you say hi first? We said you were going to say hi first. I No, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought it would be before you, but after... Matt, sorry. Uh, we're already off to a great start here. We are, we are off to a, a smashing start. So, um, folks, I am here with Lindsay Paris Lopez and Adam Erickson of the Ra- – is it the Raven Foundation still or is it the Raven Review? It's the Raven Foundation as a whole and then the um, blog, which is what – the part of it that Adam and I do is the Raven Review. So, okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm old school, so it was just the Raven foundation when I was with y'all. Yeah. yeah Raven foundation is fine. It works. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being here. Um, we go way back. So I've known y'all for a little while now and I was someone of a, a Facebook friend. I think we might be mutual Facebook friends, um jay andre roberts right um he posted on my facebook wall a very difficult question but a very good one and it was a very good observation and i thought to myself initially there's no way in hell i'm tackling this on my own i need to bring in the reinforcements so thank you for being here it has to do and i didn't bring the actual question up but it it has to do with white supremacy and mimetic theory and Girardians and why uh, Girardians seem to have a kind of they apologize for white supremacy or they they don't take it all that seriously. If I could bring up the actual question, I will, but maybe I can get your initial thoughts while I do. Lindy, you want to go first or you want me to go sure, first? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, when I... When I discovered this phenomenon for myself, it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, But I did discover it for myself. I did see that there were a lot of Girardians who did not seem to understand the full weight and scope of racism. And... Um, that, that was not my initial experience with the Girardian community. So when I saw it happening, it was, it was devastating. Um, but to answer the question, I think that Girard has a theory of human violence. Girard has an understanding of why humans are violent and it's universal, um, we have the potential for violence because we are interconnected to each other and we share each other's desires. Um, That's how we're human. We're human because we're so interconnected that um, our desires don't come from within ourselves. They come from our relationships with others and seeing what other people want. And that can lead to conflict because we don't share and all that. It's a universal human thing. And so I think when it comes to racism, for example, I think a lot of Girardians are loath to admit that there is a history of some people being more violent than other people and a history of some people being 
particularly violent to another person. It's fine to say we're all violent, but to say that um, there is a history of, you know, people who identify as white having a system, creating a whole system of violence against um, people who have more melanin in their skin. I think a lot of Girardians just seem really reluctant to admit that, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have a universal idea of violence where we're all equally implicated and we're all um, equally able to remove ourselves from the violence the more we learn and the more we learn how to interact positively. But to admit that there's a whole system of violence in which we're entrenched and some people have more privilege, um, some people have more, you know, some people have been more victimized than others. I, I think that might be a difficult thing for some Girardians. It's one thing to say, well, we're all guilty of violence. It's another thing to say white people have a particular responsibility to uprooting violence that we've created. So. so if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's not necessarily that Girardians per se are more prone to not notice it. It's simply that Girardians also don't notice it because we all kind of don't notice it and don't want to admit that our particular group, whatever that may be, does have a history of, uh, systematizing this violence? Uh, it's, it's like, I think Girardians want to feel like they, we, I shouldn't, I shouldn't otherize Girardians if I identify, um, as one, but I think there's a reluctance to, or let me put it differently. I think Girardians think we understand violence more than most people. Um, and so to say, no, you really don't understand this, um, as well as you think you do, and you haven't been on the receiving end of, of systems of violence, the way, um, the way people of color have been, I think there's a reluctance to that. I think there's, I think part of it is, um, a misplaced pride or, Mm. you know, and, and it's, it's hard to look at that in the face. It's hard to really stare at that. Um, I, what do you think, Adam? I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, those are just my initial thoughts. We could get way deeper. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, let's hear from Adam. Well, I appreciate your initial thoughts, Lindsay, as always. Um, you have great insight into mimetic theory, into the cultural uh, moment that we have as um, some, as somebody who's been studying Gerard for, I don't know, uh, 15 years or so, uh, as Lindsay said, this is heartbreaking, uh, that we even have to be talking about this with you, Matt, and that, uh, that Andre, uh, brought this up, uh, is an indictment on, um, the way that mimetic theory has been used. Uh, and I started seeing it around the year 2016, uh, and I started seeing more and more people who I admired within the Girardian community talk this way, uh, as if white supremacy is not really a thing, uh, as if racism is not really a thing. It's kind of the more we talk about it, the more 
uh, fuel we give to it. And so we should just kind of ignore it uh, was the way that I was experiencing people, Girardians talk about it, uh, which I saw on a tragedy on many different levels, including uh, on the level um, that mimetic theory has helped me in so many ways own my own racism. And here's here's what I mean by that. And here's where, I don't know, this might be part of the issue with, with Girardians, as Lindsay is saying. Um, mimetic theory, as Lindsay has taught us, uh, is... Uh, it tells us that we are we do not form ourselves. None of us are uh, are self made creatures. We are formed by the other. Specifically, um, and more generally, the the culture in which we are born. The United States was founded, like many cultures are. The United States was founded on violence that continues to be with us today. We have not been able to shake free of this violent act, which was uh, violence against our indigenous siblings and violence against our black siblings. Uh, Girardians, some Girardians will say things like, well, uh, when it comes to our indigenous siblings, they were always at war with one another anyway, so it's okay for us to have come in and uh, gone to war with them. Total bullshit. Total what about ism, and it's just like it's so frustrating uh, to have to deal with this. It's it's a way of projecting our own violence onto onto another. Uh, it's a justification, um, and I see that happening. I also see in Girardian circles a. I think that the one of the worst things that you can be in the United States is. Uh, a racist. Um, and one of the things that I think Lindsay pointed to is that in the United States, we one of the ways that white supremacy works is to say that racism is about individual actions. Mm. It's to say that uh, that that person is a racist, which means that I don't have to be a racist in Girardian uh, terms. This is, this is why Gerard has helped me out so much with this topic. I have been able to see how that is scapegoating the overt racist over there and projecting my own covert racism upon them. I have been formed in this system of the United States that says that, uh, that the ideal good uh, is in being white. Uh, It's what I grew up with seeing on television. Uh, It is what I grew up with in my um, well-to-do neighborhood. I saw mostly white people. uh, And that is the lens through which I view the world and continue to view the world. Um, So that's mimetic theory helps me understand the, the culture that I swim in. Uh, and I am often blind to the way that white supremacy continues to infect me and continues to um, blind me to the racism that's within me and that's within my culture. Um, so that's how mimetic theory has helped me uh, to see this. My, my, For example, a lot of people think that racism is just a thing that ended with slavery. Uh, not the case. 
Not the case at all. My grandfather, who fought in World War II, benefited from the GI Bill. My parents benefited from my grandfather getting the GI Bill. I benefited from my grandfather getting the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was huge for me and my family. You know who didn't benefit from the GI Bill? Our black black people didn't. That continues to affect us today. This is generational wealth. And it's something that as long as we say uh, that white supremacy is a myth or racism is a myth, uh, it's something that we will never deal with and we will always be haunted by it. And um, that's that's the tragedy. That's part of the tragedy of uh, how Girardians uh, frequently fall into the blindness of the racism that continues to affect the United States. Right. Um well, I'm sorry, Matt, if, if you have anything to say, I've got a lot to say based on what Adam just said, too. So, Well, no, I want to get to a few things that, that Andre had pointed out. But please, if you have something um, to piggyback off of that, do that, and then I will get to a few more things. Okay, yeah, awesome. I'll try to be um, a little quick. So as Adam said, um, there are Girardians who will point to the violence of other cultures to say that, you know, you know, um, American Americanism isn't so bad. Look at the Native American, look at the indigenous people of this country before. And, you know, he's right that that's projection. Um, and it's a projection that I think Girardians in particular may be prone to make because, there's a theory, part of mimetic theory talks about how human cultures were all formed in violence. Um, and that's that's an interesting part of Gerard's theory. And we have seen how people come together over a common enemy over and over and over again. So I do believe that that is something that happens frequently and that cultures are built on that. But I'm not sure if every single culture in existence has always been built on that. That's a part of mimetic theory, a part of what Gerard has been known for that, you know, actually I'm starting to push back a little in my mind or say, or say you know, I don't really know that for sure. But the point is um, the idea that American culture was born in violence, but so was every other culture. And so, you know, why is whiteness worse than anything else? Um, You know, I've seen Girardians make that argument, but it's it's extremely problematic, um, especially because whiteness itself was invented as a category against which to scapegoat others. What I mean by that is when, um, when, when the United States long before the United States was the United States, uh, when people were coming to this land from, from both Europe and Africa, a lot of, you know, a lot of the people who came were indentured servants from all different, from all over the place, you know. And um, at first, bonds of class meant that white indentured servants and black indentured servants and slaves had co- a common, um, 
had a common cause or at least a common burden. And they, they formed a common cause um, in the failed attempt of Bacon's Rebellion. And uh, Bacon's Rebellion was when white and brown uh, came together to try to unite against um, against masters and people who were, you know, more rich than they were. And bonds of class were specifically broken by the invention of race. Um, you know, whiteness was formed to say, we're going to free white indentured servants. We're going to make black indentured servants permanently slaves. Some were already slaves. We're going to, we're going to make everyone, you know, who's darker permanently slaves. And we're going to set up this false dynamic according to race. Um, so that we, so that when immigrants come here, no matter where they come from, if you have white skin, you have a common bond and we're going to keep people from bonding over, over a class issue, over, you know, a lack of wealth. We're going to give crumbs to some poor white people. But one of the biggest crumbs is this sense of superiority over over darker skin, which we're going to demonize. And, you know, there's a very specific kind of racism that's very American in origin, which is not to say that tribalism didn't exist, which is not to say that there wasn't anti-dark sentiment beforehand, because there was. But, you know, racism as we know it today you can really trace a big originating point to um, to Bacon's Rebellion. And basically, basically a conscious choice to scapegoat darker skin um, in order to bring unity over it. And that's a Girardian concept that, you know, that's a concept that Girard makes very, very clear. So... Um, so as Adam was saying, Gerard can help us really understand racism if we want to, if we want to learn about it that way. Um, and why not all Gerardians know this or think it's worth knowing kind of does bewilder me. Um, what Gerard also does is help us understand, um, he helps us understand the concept of myth and, um, you know, American exceptionalism is a myth. Um, uh, uh, manifest destiny is a myth. These myths that we tell ourselves in order to tell stories that heighten us over and against um, a scapegoated culture um, or a scapegoated people. Gerard helps me understand a lot of the mythology beyond behind American nationalism and white nationalism and white supremacy. Um, but not everyone interprets Gerard the same way. It's, it's a difficult thing. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, I think that, I think you make a great point there and something we have to remember is that, within mimetic theory, there's going to be a ton of different interpretations. There's, 
there's going to be interpretations of Gerard. There's going to be pushback on Gerard, like you said earlier, Lindsay, that you're not you're, you're starting to push back on the fact that all cultures aren't founded on violence. And and I think uh, that's the case with any sort of sociological, anthropological, any sort of scientific theory is that we learn as we go and we push back on older ideas. And, and, and that's good. Um, what confounds me within this whole thing is that, and I've seen this a lot, and, and I want to get both of your thoughts, and, and, and Andre brings this up in the private message, is that this term scapegoating is being misused, I think, and I've noticed it so many times. Um, I notice it in people who don't understand mimetic theory, and I understand that they use this term flippantly, and they don't understand the me- scapegoating mechanism. They think anytime you criticize, anytime you critique, oh, you're scapegoating now. But I've noticed it even in Girardian circles that there's like almost a misuse of this. Anytime you're pushing back on, like right now, we could probably be accused of scapegoating those who don't think that there's white supremacy and and white privilege. Oh, you're just scapegoating. And it's like, I don't know what to do with that except to say, well, maybe you're just not understanding how scapegoating works. Adam, do you want to go first? Yeah. I want to go first on this one. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer that question uh, by going back to 2016 when I first started seeing this all coming up. And one of the things that I saw was that, that some Girardians feared revenge. If, if we were going to go down this road of uh, saying that white supremacy exists uh they 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 came to this idea and you can see this in Gerard and this is where I would push back against Gerard uh that all uh all oppressed groups end up um once they get uh things going their way end up becoming the oppressor so uh this is the flipping of the tables and so some Gerardians would talk about this as merely revenge and so I don't know if that was an argument against uh, white supremacy or saying that white supremacy exists, but we shouldn't do anything about it because then black people are going to become the oppressors. It's just this bullshit argument because I don't see any black people saying that they want revenge, uh, saying that they want to scapegoat the scapegoaters. That's that's Matt, where you're where your comment comes in is that Girardians are afraid of scapegoating the scapegoaters, scapegoating the white supremacists. Right. I don't see that in the black lives matter movement. What I see in the black lives matter movement is not, Oh, we need to go get those jerks. It's, Hey, can you, I have a good friend, Melvin Bray. And I was talking with Melvin Bray. He's a black man from Georgia. And I was talking to him about this. And Melvin said, when there is a boot on my neck and I merely try to take that boot off my neck, white people are going to say that that's a violent act. Yeah. That's essentially what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. All I'm trying to do is get the boot off of my neck and you're going to say that now I am the oppressor, that I want to switch places with the white man and become the oppressor. That is not what we want to do. (laughs) It's not what black people want. They just want, the same privileges as everyone else. And as a white person, when I say that, something inside of me says, 
I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose something of my privilege if I share that with somebody who is black or brown. That is the racism that I grew up with that not that my parents taught me, but that my culture taught me because I have learned in it's part of our capitalist system. Uh, it's part of our political system. It's part of our uh, race system that everything is a zero sum game. Yeah. So I don't realize that when my black siblings are lifted up, it is good for me too. It is good for all of us <laughs> when any of us are lifted up and when the boot is off any of our necks, when the boot is on any of our necks, it is on all of our necks because we are interconnected as human beings. Mm-hmm. We are not yeah. living together in a flourishing way, which means we're going to have the uh, the the horrors of racism affect our black and brown siblings far more than they affect me. I don't want to, I don't want to give that impression, but it's also affecting me too. It's the, the oppressor has a, has a, has the shackles on them too. And as I'm saying that it doesn't sound right coming out of my mouth. Right. But there's something about the oppressor who is not living into the fullness of their humanity because their identity is based on someone else being oppressed. That's why when I'm, when I'm saying, uh, when it feels like when, uh, somebody like, like a black person is being brought up, something is being taken away from me. That's something that's wrong inside of me. (laughs) That's, that's white supremacy that is inside of me that I am constantly having to deal with because of the mimetic culture that I was brought up in. Now, just to uh, the argument at its best that I've seen from Girardians, and I hesitate to say at its best because it's, it's still very problematic, is that some Girardians will turn this away from a race issue and into a class issue. So the issue is not racism that we need to be dealing with. It's classism. Um, and there's a certain part of me that says it's like, uh, like there's a truth to that. Uh, but that classism also has to deal with the racism that's embedded in our nation as well. Uh, otherwise, um, we're not going to deal with it. Yeah. Lindsay, I want to get your thoughts, but, um, the way you were describing that the, um, zero sum game reminds me of like the ancient cultures, like Rome, Greek, uh, first, first century, second temple culture, uh, the honor shame culture. Yes, it, it was it was a zero sum game. It, it, you know, so it, it balanced out in the end, and and we we're still embedded in that mindset. And mm-hmm. uh, regarding the race and class, I mean, people can say that, but look, like if you get a black dude driving a nice car, what's your what what is the yep. culture's initial thought? It's not yep. that he worked hard for it; it's that he's a drug dealer or an athlete or some shit yep. like that. And it's like. That that so I don't I mean there's probably some truth to the fact that there is class issues here um, because I think I think white supremacy or white supremacists probably hate poor white people too um, but but 
that I think is in itself embedded in the racism. Yes. So if, if we want to dig and dig, if we, we I think we can say the class thing, but I think if we dig it a further lay, a further layer down, we get to the race part. Yes. It all goes back to Lindsay's brilliant point about Bacon's rebellion. The way that the, the rich white folk were able to say to the poor folk, uh, Hey, let's create a common enemy and we can all be you we can all use our whiteness to be against black people was a way of getting poor folk to see that they were not the bottom uh rung of the ladder and at least their lives weren't as bad as our black siblings. Mm-hmm. And that, that kept the rich people safer, it, you know, physically rich, safer. Yes. yes, because it it split up uh white poor people from our black siblings. And we've been dealing with that kind. We're seeing that racism right now. Last week on Wednesday, when Trump supporters went to the Capitol, you know what would be the best thing for Trump supporters to have Joe Biden in the presidency. They're going to help, help poor white people the most. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, um, I know there's that's problematic. He's really, he's he's not the most, Progressive. He's more progressive yeah, than I'm, Trump. But let's. Yeah, but, that's the point that I'm trying to make. So. Yeah. I mean, and I think we can go back way before, way before Wednesday. I really, I really think that um, after the civil rights movement came, like Reaganomics, and after, after, yeah. after um, the state. After it was law that you could not discriminate based on race, after that became law, um, and of course that didn't happen. I mean, there was, of course, de facto segregation that has still not ended. But once um, segregation by law um, was reduced because of because of laws, I think that's about the same time when benefits from the government started shrinking. And so there is a connection there. Um, I think there's a connection between um, between austerity politics, between trickle-down economics and racism. I think that's a huge connection, but I don't want to go into all of that just now because that's probably a whole nother topic. Um, but um, yeah, I think a point that Gerard makes that I think some Gerardians understand and are scared of is that when people have more access to the same things, then desires can clash even more and there can be more violence. So so there can be more, um, more conflict coming from upward mobility. Um, but only if you, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way. The idea that, oh, if, if African-Americans have the right to vote, if women have the right to vote, if everyone has the same rights, then they'll have the same opportunities for power. So there's going to be more power struggles. There's going to be more struggles over wealth. There's going to be more conflict. Well, that is potentially true, but if we see it as a zero-sum game, then we will always try to protect ourselves. 
But if we know that we're interconnected, if we know that, as Dr. King has said, I can never be what I am meant to be until you are what you are meant to be, then giving everyone not only equal opportunity, but abundant opportunity, um, you know, that we should be able to see the good in that. Really knowing our interconnection can help us understand where conflict comes from, but it also helps us understand where cooperation and community and love and nourishing relationships and goodness and all the things that, you know, are the full flourishing of our humanity comes from our interconnection. And until we are all flourishing, we're not. Until there is justice everywhere, there is not really full justice anywhere. Um, A huge part of that is getting away from materialism to something much deeper, you know, because if we measure our value or our worth based on stuff, um, there is a sense in which if everyone has equal you know, if we really truly have true equality, the very, very, very rich won't be able to keep all of their wealth. It just can't work that way. And um, so that's a class issue. But it, it's, you know, that that can be a race issue, too, especially when, um, especially since there is a huge wealth gap, a huge generational wealth gap. Um as long as we are a very vengeful culture, um, you know, to to look at another angle, as long as we're a very, very vengeful culture, then if we say, you know, white people should be held accountable the same way black people are, well, for, for certain crimes, because that's not happening. The criminal justice system is very skewed, very flawed. Well, do we want more prison, more jails, more, more police officers on the street, or do we want um, more opportunities for redemption, more opportunities for becoming better? Like, you know, um, (laughs) I'm just going from point to point. I don't know if, if my train of thought is, uh, if, if other people are following everything I'm saying, but, you know, if we want true equality, Um, Are we going to be vengeful or are we going to be compassionate? If we want true equality, do we want equal punishment or equal kindness? And um, we just can't physically share an equal amount of wealth if some of us have more than we'll ever need and others have nothing. There has to be some giving. Um, There has to be some sharing and... uh, you know, if we measure our worth by how much stuff we have, and especially if we measure our worth by how much more we have than other people, then we're not going to get to a place of equity and justice on a, on a racial level or, or anything else. So we have to understand the interconnection and we have to understand that we're all universally loved. Um, yeah, when it comes to scapegoating too, I think 
there is a huge difference between the satanic voice and the prophetic voice. So what I mean by that is if we are accusing, blaming, and, you know, yelling at people and saying, you are just, you're awful, you're, you suck, you're trash, um, and we're not leaving room for redemption, that can be seen as scapegoating. Now, that can be that can be done. I could call President Trump trash and believe him to be irredeemable, and then I would be accusing him. That would be a form of scapegoating. But I could say, these actions are terrible. He should not have a position of power. And that would not be scapegoating because... My goal isn't to just bury him. My goal is to, you know, my goal is to help the people who are suffering under his power. And it's not, it's not rooted in personal hatred. And I don't want to see vengeance. I just want to see accountability. I want to see an end to suffering. Um... I just used Trump as, as, as a very easy example, but, um, I mean, I've seen Girardians hating the idea of cancel culture, but what's good about cancel culture is canceling behaviors that are no longer or have never been tolerable. But the caveat is leaving room for human redemption. And I think difference between the satanic and the prophetic is whether or not you leave room for human redemption but that redemption has to bear fruit um you have to you have to see you have to see the fruit that's being born out of out of change and um, if you don't call out problematic behaviors there won't be change and so well and i and i think and i think the israelians should understand this that and this is why we need to focus primarily on the systemic and the systematic because, you know, when you use Trump as an example, and I like to point out, like, Trump is not necessarily the problem because in a healthy society, someone like Trump does not get elected, does not get a place of power. So we have to get to the root of these things. And we we need to talk about the culture at large. We need to talk about the systems in place that allows for this. And so... It, it it again boggles my mind that anytime you critique this behavior, I let, look. I I leave I leave room for people like Trump to for to find redemption, you know all this kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean I'm not gonna point out the behavior that continues to oppress primarily black and brown folks. Uh, anyone that is not you know cis hetero white. That doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm scapegoating. Now, now I did hear scapegoating of Trump. Uh, I heard it when he was running in 2015 and 2016, where the Republican Party said, uh, if we just get rid of Trump, the party's fine, blah, blah, blah. That to me is like scapegoating. That is like, that's like Oedipus and Thebes. Like, you know, it's not, you got to, you got to get to, you got to get one layer deeper to see like, why is Trump even gaining momentum in your party or in America now? Um, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. We got to get to that systemic level. And that's why when it comes to racism, 
let, let's forget for a second individual racists. Let's talk about the systemic racism that we all should be able to acknowledge. Yeah. We all should be able to acknowledge white, black, black, brown. We have to acknowledge that there are systemic. I, look at this guy, the shaman, the Q shaman. He got he got organic food in prison. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Our prison system should be reformed. Uh, but it doesn't mean like I, I agree that he should get organic food and and most every run of the mill, mainly black and brown criminals shouldn't. Yeah, he probably he probably should get organic food, but not in this instance, not until like, wait, let's change the system up so everyone's getting that because until everyone's getting that, he fucking shouldn't get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Um, but what you did there was, no, I, I do know exactly what you mean. Um, but that's the thing. We, um, we talk about systems, but then we break it down to individual examples, which, which you, which you've just done. So that's, that's what I was doing with Trump too. And it's not wrong to find the individual examples and call them and call them out. Like, to say you're participating in a harmful culture, this is how, and, um, you know, people are hopefully more likely to change their behavior if, if they are, if, if it's pointed out exactly how they are participating in these systems. But another thing that, like, yeah, another reason why scapegoating can be so problematic is that um, if you only point to a symptom, you're not pointing to the deeper problems. So, yeah, I've seen scapegoating, like, I've seen reducing the problem to an individual. I've seen that happen with both Democrats and Republicans. I've seen that happen all over the place. I've seen um, the problem with that is not looking deeper into larger systems, larger factors at play, and especially, um, you know, your own, your own faults, your own flaws. Um, so for another example, I was really, really frustrated after the 2016 election to hear so much about Russia, whether or not they did you know, whatever Russia did is important, but I heard more about Russia than any other problems that the Democrats had when it came to campaigning. That's another example, like finding someone to blame without looking at your at what else you could be doing or without looking at a bigger, broader system um, can be very problematic because you don't get to the real root and heart of the problem. So whether it's um, saying everything was fine before Trump or um, looking more at Russia than the huge problems within our own electoral system, um, I think I think those are both problematic things. Um, that's not to say we should just not... Um, you know, we should look at every part of a problem every, when it becomes, but it's a matter of, you know, if all the focus is against one particular enemy, whatever, whoever that enemy may be, then um, we're never going to solve things. So, yeah. Adam, let's, let's hear from you before we, uh, 
before we start to wind down here. What are your thoughts? Uh, I have a stat for you. Can I give you a stat and yeah, let's you, let's do it. Tell you how a Black Lives Matter, uh, which is what I aspire to, uh, would interpret this stat and how a the white supremacy with the white supremacist within me interprets this stat. Are you ready? Yeah, bring it. Black men receive 19% longer jail time than white men for the same crime. 19% longer. Uh, A black lives, somebody who aspires to uh, racial justice. I think that is such a horrific stat that shows the evils of white supremacy that infects our nation. It's Lindsay was talking about, um, and you too, Matt, we're talking about uh, prisons and how they're working. And this is a stat that shows the race, the racism within our justice system as a white, the white supremacist that's in me looks at that stat and says, Oh, thank God. Because that means that I am likely to have lesser time in jail. If I should commit a crime than a black person, that means I have less time in jail. And isn't that good for me? (laughs) Right. That's like, that is the thing that, that in this conversation with Gerard, that is part of the tragedy with it is that Gerard has taught me that that's what, that's what scapegoating is. At least, at least my life is not as bad as that person. And as long as that black man is in jail, and I am not in jail, or I receive less time in jail, that's good for me. As long as the white supremacist system uh, benefits me, that's awesome. That's good. Even if it comes at the expense of someone else, that's the white supremacist mindset. And Gerard has helped me, Medic Theory has helped me uh, to move the veils from my eyes and see that as a radical injustice. It's part of the myth that Lindsay was talking about. The word myth uh, comes from the Greek word muo, which means to silence. The myth tries to silence our Black siblings. And how does it do that? It's by saying uh, the Black person deserved that 19% because of what they did. The white person doesn't deserve that 19% because they're not as bad as the black person. Um, Even though they committed the same crime, there must be something about that black person that's worse. And so we start to conduct mythological narratives about how the black person, the black boy who uh, might be playing with a toy gun or might be playing with something like a toy car. We can't tell the difference from 50 feet away, or it might be a real gun. Who cares? We're going to shoot him to protect our, to protect ourselves. The kid who's walking down the street with Skittles uh, is a threat to our white community because he's black, the color of his skin. And so George Zimmerman's going to kill him and he's going to get off scot-free because stand your ground. Oh, I thought he had a gun. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he works. Yeah. I, I, I just need uh, to say this. I would love if, if white people would understand that it's not the lack of melanin in the skin that's the problem, it's the concept of whiteness. Whiteness is, by definition, a power over sort of thing. And it changes with time. Look, 
A hundred years ago, I would not be considered white because I have Sicilian heritage. Yeah, it was testified in Congress that I would not be a white person. I was not black, but I was not white. We were Dago and, and, and we were persecuted under Jim Crow, not to the extent of black people, but still persecuted. Now, Sicilian Americans are considered white. It is a power structure, a power over structure that has it does have correlation to the color of your skin, but it is a system that changes over time. And I don't know, but it just might bite you in the ass someday. You know, it you you, you might find yourself not in that in that power over system anymore. And not to think of these things selfishly. We need to have empathy. We need to have compassion for others. But if you want to get selfish for a second, look, this whole system is not there to 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 benefit uh, everyone. And you might find yourself on the lower end of that rung. I mean, I don't know. And, and, and again, that's that wouldn't be my final thought on this whole thing. But I just want people to understand that whiteness is a power over system that keeps brown and black people down. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely it is. And um, it does change over time, but it's not going to change to the extent that um, it's not going to change to the extent that the people who are victimized the most are the people who are the darkest. That's, that's just really, it's not going to, it's not going to change. It's not going to, it's not going to reverse. It's way too deeply entrenched. Uh, The only, the only way that it can be, um, that it can be mitigated is to really dismantle this power structure and dismantle the idea of over and againstness, dismantle right. this zero sum game, um, right. dismantle the concept that our identities are based on who we are over or under. Um, you know, all of that has to be dismantled. And Gerard teaches us why, as human beings, we um, were so prone to measuring ourselves over and against others. But, you know, Gerard teaches us that that is a part of um, who we are now. Like, that's, that's part of the human condition. Gerard helps to illuminate that it's part of the human condition that we measure ourselves over and against each other. But that is not where we need to end up. I don't think that that's... Um, I mean, Gerard also believes in Jesus and as, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of the fully human one, um, our full humanity is realized when we don't measure ourselves over and against each other. When we get to the point when we no longer measure ourselves against one another, that is when we will live into our full humanity. And we should be working towards that point. Um, You know, dismantling systemic racism is a huge, huge part of that. And we have to recognize how deeply entrenched it is. You know, Gerard, Gerard teaches that we learn from each other. We learn from, um, you know, part of being human is learning from other humans. So that right away shows that segregation diminishes our humanity, right? 
We're not right. learning from everybody if we are isolating according to skin color. If we've had a system of segregation going back generations, and it's not just laws, it's also wealth, it's also um, redlining, it's also physical separation, it's also um, assigning value to, you know, certain things and devaluing other things and everything that comes with that, the whole system of racism you know, I think Gerard does help me understand it um, better, but I can also see why I can also see why Gerard's understanding of violence and humanity in a pessimistic way can um, keep people afraid. Um, I don't think Gerard wants us to be afraid, but his assessment of humanity can be frightening if we don't understand that our the absolute fullness of our humanity lies in transcending our conflicts and moving on to cooperation. And when we know that, you know, that diminishes our fear. And it also helps us to face what's problematic within us and trans and helps us to try to transcend that too, to face our own racism in order to um, to know that we can't move past it without facing it. So, Yeah, all, all good thoughts. Um, Adam, I want to get maybe your last thoughts for a, give you a minute or two and then Lindsay, same thing before we wrap up. Did we answer Andre's question? Did we answer know. questions? <laughs> We're 53 minutes into this and I'm like, I don't know if you answered his questions. Well, I I mean, look, I mean, I don't know if there is an answer to this question. I mean, not all Girardians are equal. We all have blind spots. Um, Andre had specific questions though, right? Um, He had specific questions about, uh, there was one about an why, why, what and why is there an appeal of Girard to people with conscious or unconscious racial bias? Um, he had something about the definition of scapegoating and, and, and it being increasingly weaponized against people when you're not actually scapegoating. I think we got that one. Okay. Um, and then how do we hold accountability and scapegoating? Uh, how do we hold account uh, someone accountable without scapegoating? I think Lindsay got into that, you know, the spirit of the prophetic spirit versus the accusatory or the satanic spirit. Um, we, we may not have gotten to the first one. What and why is there an appeal of Girard to people with conscious or unconscious racial bias my thoughts is that i think uh well lindsay touched on it there, there's a fear of um there's a fear of of, of the uh, the oppressor be, i mean the oppressed being becoming the uh, uh, oppressor um and and i just think that girardian or otherwise like i just think i just think people are are, are racist are tribalistic and I don't necessarily think understanding Gerard on a book level will necessarily transform someone. It could. It's helped me. It, it, Adam, you've said it's helped you. I know, Lindsay, it's helped you. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case for everyone. Like you could read Gerard till you're blue in the face. And I don't know if it's going to necessarily transform you. I think we get transformed on a heart level by just having compassion and empathy for one another. And and mimetic theory and Gerard can help with describing things. But not it's not going to help us necessarily actually confront the racist within 
I think at the beginning we were talking about, um, I, I think when, when Adam said something like Girardians will point to some Girardians will point to indigenous people and talk about their violence. I think I got into it too. When I said Gerard, part of Gerard's theory is that cultures begin in violence. I really think that a lot of Girardians say that and say, and want to say, well, white American culture is no worse than any other when the word, when the invention, the concept of whiteness is actually a scapegoating mechanism. I don't know if all Girardians understand that. We see it, you know, it, even, even I, I know that whiteness is a power structure. You were saying the same thing, Matthew, but um, when I just think of it, the first thing that comes to my mind is skin color. Um, so I, I really think that when I first encountered Gerard, I thought, oh, wow, this is like all the answers, which is a terrible, scary thing to think. Uh, you should never think that. But Gerard is very, very broad and, and covers multiple disciplines and everything. Um, I think that there can be an arrogance with thinking you found something that explains everything. And if racism yeah. isn't a part of that, then, well... It's not as important. I mean, we've discovered why people are violent from an anthropological perspective, going back to the dawn of humanity. Why do we need to know more about racism? Uh, it's, there's, there is an arrogance there, and I think it's kind of easy to fall into that trap. Um, I don't know. I mean, we have to keep, we have to be humble. We have to know that there's a lot more to know. And I think um, intelligence of the victim is James Allison's term more so than Gerard's, I think. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And um, I mean, Gerard helps to illuminate it, but we've got to see where we have privilege. We're not the victim. Therefore, we don't have the intelligence of the victim or survivor or person or people living under systemic oppression. Um we have to see that. So, yeah, I think that there, there can be an arrogance associated with thinking we've figured out human violence. I also think that Gerard himself doesn't speak as much to the imbalances of power so much as he speaks to what happens when people are on, have a relatively balanced type of power and then they get into more conflicts because um, they have not only the desire, but the ability to fulfill the desire at the expense of someone else. I don't know if Gerard explains huge power imbalances like racism as well as, well, I, I don't really think he explains it very well. I don't think it's a huge part of, of what mimetic theory deals with. But at the same time, I think mimetic theory does help me understand racism better. So that's my final thought. Adam, Adam, you got some final thoughts here? I, I, I think we've covered it. I think. We, we solved oh, all the world's problems. Well, I mean, I, I just want to thank Andre for his, uh, for his questions and for bringing this up. And uh, it's, I mean, we keep, we keep Andre brings up a, an important point. Uh, within Girardian circles. And 
it's uh, it's one of the reasons that I tend to not go to Girardian Facebook pages uh, because of the sense that Andre has brought up in his in his questions, uh, and um, I j- it's it's important to keep doing the work. And um, thank you, Matt, for inviting us to come on your podcast and uh, have this important conversation. I've just really enjoyed what Lindsay has had to say and what you've had to say, Matt, and um, the work uh, for us Girardians who see the racism and the white supremacy that permeates our nation. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Thank you both for coming on. And I I just, I just appreciate the fact, Andre, I appreciate the fact that you, um, you know, you had the guts to, to post this publicly on my site and I take on the challenge because look, I mean, it's easy to become defensive. It's easy to, um, it's easy to fall in the trap. Like you said, Lindsay, where, where we initially come into contact with Gerard, it's almost like the Dunning Kruger effect. We, we get this, this bit of knowledge and, and now we have this over exuberant amount of confidence and, and it's not until we get later on that we, we realize we didn't even know what we didn't know. And, and, unless we have conversations like this, unless we can have open and honest conversations like this, unless we can say like we, we benefit many of us benefit from, from, from white uh, privilege, from white supremacy and, and, and to be able to be like, but we need to dismantle it at the same time. We're not going to, so we need to have these conversations. And so I just want to thank Lindsay, Adam for coming on um, my, my show here and Andre for, for kicking this off. Like, like cheers, cheers, mate. Uh, I owe you a beer if, if that's your thing. <laughs> Thank one, you, Andre. One, one last thing that I might say is how how deeply rooted this is. Uh, we have a friend, Julia Robinson Moore, uh, who is a Girardian, uh, African-American scholar. And she tells a story about how she met Gerard. And Gerard, when he was in the beginning of his career, was at Duke uh, in North Carolina. And Julia talked with Gerard and said, you were there working on mimetic theory in around the same decades that there was still lynchings going on almost outside of your window in North Carolina. And you didn't say anything about it. And Gerard I don't know what Gerard said to that, <laughs> but Gerard emphasized, I think this was to Lindsay's last point, Gerard emphasized not social justice issues that are present, but seeing how this system that he was bringing forth worked throughout um, history, specifically in stories, in the Bible, um, in myths. Uh, and he left it up to folks like us to figure out how to um, analyze it in more current events. Um, and I think that he was also uh, resisted doing that for good or for bad. I would might say for bad, but um, because he didn't, because he was worried about scapegoating people in the present. Um and that gets to all of our conversations about scapegoating. Uh, mm-hmm. But just to just to point out how like this conversation goes back to the very beginning uh, 
of Gerard's career. And thank goodness for Julia. Check out Julia's work. She's got some uh, videos on racism and mimetic theory on the Raven Foundation website. I think you can find it there. Julia Robinson Moore has done tremendous work on this topic. Um, So I would encourage anybody listening to this to go check it out. Yeah. And I'll definitely uh, get the link from you guys so I can uh, stick it in the show notes. Oh, Lindsay uh, interviewed Julia. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. Then I want that link so I can throw it in there for people to click on. So yeah. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Andre. And thanks, Adam. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all. I'll talk to you later. All right. Peace out. Bye. Bye. Well, now, now that we, uh, now that we accomplished, uh, one of the headiest and heaviest episodes of this. I think, I think probably everyone, are you ready for a drink? Uh, your favorite, your favorite bourbon or scotch. I, I don't drink these days any longer. So, um, I guess I'll have to stick with green tea, <laughs> but yeah, the, no, that was, that was good. I, I, I think it took on a little bit of a different tone. We, I try to do a little more lightheaded stuff, not lighthearted stuff. Uh, on here, even though we do tackle some, um, you know, some heavy issues on here. Uh, but I, I just felt like that one was especially, I mean, it was, it was good. It was good. I love talking with those folks. They gave me my start. So, um, huge shout out to all things Raven. I even have a Raven tattoo on my ribs. Um, it's, it's from the Raven review, Raven foundation, uh, logo. Um, because in 2015, like, they started, they helped me start out, you know, they, they gave me a platform. I started as a guest contributor there and then they moved me to a full-time contributor or a regular contributor. Um, I guess I'm technically still, a reg- I don't know. <laughs> I haven't written for them in a long time. Um, doing my own thing on Pathios, but, um, nothing but love for everyone over at the Raven review, Susan, Suzanne Ross, Maura Janus, or Jan- Janius, um, and then Lindsay and Adam and, and everyone else who may be involved. I greatly respect their work. So go check them out. Um, I think they're even on Patheo still on Teaching Nonviolent Atonement is their blog. So you can sc- subscribe to that. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy the episode, Andre. I hope we answered your question to, to some extent. Um, and I hope that helps in some way. Um, yeah. So nothing but love for everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and please rate and review. If you do want to support the show, patreon.com slash MJDistefano. And I'll see you next time. Much love. Mm-hmm.